So uh, I just I'm trying to figure out. I had a way to start here, but maybe I will start just by. Um, I'm going to say it again in a moment, but my main desire this morning is to see Christ and to be drawn to him and to exalt him together. And uh, so don't forget, that's the, that is the goal. And if we don't accomplish that, if that doesn't happen, then indeed nothing really of worth has happened. So... This morning, we know it will be a topical, more of a topical message addressing a specific contemporary issue. And so, for that reason, I'm going to be starting with a question. And the question, I I encourage you to really think carefully about your answer to this question. The question for you is, what if someone asked you to be Jesus? In a, in a theatrical production, whether theater, movie, TV, um, drama, to play Jesus, his personality, his personal interactions, his imagined conversations, I want to ask you, what would you do? And even if you were a, hol- a highly qualified actor, because maybe it's hard for us to put ourselves in that place, we're, we're not a good actor maybe, I want to ask you, even if you were highly qualified, would you have any reservations? And if so, what would those reservations be? Would you feel in- inadequate, perhaps? I-, I would hope that probably any, any humble Christian, right, and we all, would like to be called at least a humble Christian, um, would say, oh, I just, I just don't, I feel like I would be inadequate. Perhaps you'd even feel, even if you had the acting qualifications, perhaps you would feel unqualified fundamentally to act the part. So I'm rather serious about that. I rather almost wish I was putting a production together, and I could ask you, and you would have to be seriously actually answer that question for yourself. But, but maybe you would have reservations, um, but maybe someone else wouldn't. So my question to you is, is this just, a, you know, is your feeling of inadequacy or your humble reservations, is that just a matter of feeling and preference? Or does it come back to a matter of conviction rooted in Scripture? Uh, I, I don't often preach topical messages. I, I, I preach them as I suppose there's a need for them. Um, one, of the, one of the things that happens, though, is when there's a need for a topical message, it, it may be somewhat more difficult to listen to. It might be more entertaining at some level. It might be more fun at some level. Uh, it could also be more difficult. And so I'd ask you to bear with me in this. Um, should you or should you not um, play the part of Jesus? We know that The the Chosen uh, is a show, and maybe we don't know, all of us. And by the way, if you don't know about The Chosen and you've never seen it, um, this message will still entirely apply to you because this message is not about The Chosen. This message is about Jesus. Um, 
And so even if you go away saying, uh, disagreeing with me on the chosen, I know you will be able to agree with me on Jesus. So, The Chosen is a show about the life of Jesus uh, with a global and a constantly growing audience. I want to say at the outset, there are many reservations I have about The Chosen. Um, I'm only going to be speaking to the one that I find the most serious this morning. Having said that, The Chosen is loved by multitudes of true born-again Christians. It's, it's, It's loved. By, by many, and, and undoubtedly, and no doubt, by, by perhaps many, I don't know, uh, many in, in our midst this morning. So again, this is not about judging. It's not about judging others. It's not about me judging you or any one of us judging one another. It's about examining what we do and why we do it. So apparently... The Chosen is doing lots of good. People are reading their Bibles more. People are, the the word I hear used a lot and saw used a lot on on social media or on on various video clips is people are connecting more with Jesus. Another phrase I see often used by producers and um, actors in the show is that people are being and greatly encouraged in their in their faith journey. Faith journey is certainly a significant phrase and one often used today. But let me ask you if if you were the individual playing Jesus in the chosen, if you happen to have seen the show, you know who I'm talking about. Um, and you had all of his talent and you were invited to play Jesus, to be Jesus in the chosen, would you? Should you? And is this a question I would ask? Have we ever asked ourselves this question before? Because this goes to a deeper, more fundamental issue. Because at some level, I'm not, I would be more concerned if we all said, hey, this is, this is a cool show, I like this show, and we never actually stopped and asked ourselves, well, what, what are the issues that might relate to this? Now, part of this, is, part of this is just the role of shepherds, shepherding sheep. So we don't, I don't want to expect. But, but the other part is that we want the sheep to be wise. And we want the sheep to, to ask questions, to think through things before simply embracing things. So... This, remember, is not a message about the chosen. I'm not going to mention the chosen for a little, quite a while now. It's a message about Christ. And so we'll start with what we'll call a biblical Christology. Uh, Last week we talked a lot about tradition. We talked about manger scenes and cattle sheds and things like that. Um, I briefly mentioned the difference between big T tradition and small t tradition. And I'm a big believer in big T tradition, and, and uh, in a different way, in small T tradition. But for our purposes this morning, what is big T tradition? Uh, there are many, many Protestants who don't fully appreciate big T tradition, and we ought to. It refers, for our purposes this morning, to the universal consensus, agreement, 
of the Orthodox Church. And by Orthodox, what I'm referring to is a Trinitarian Orthodoxy. So Orthodox meaning a right understanding of God existing in three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, which also implies a right understanding of the person of Jesus Christ. Right? So... Big T tradition is the universal consensus of the Orthodox Church throughout the whole history of the Church, uh, so that as that consensus has found expression in what we call the ecumenical creeds. So we start with the Apostles' Creed, which grew organically out of the life of the Church through the tradition handed down by the Apostles. The Apostles' Creed has no specific date because it just just grew organically, really. And so did the other creeds, but they can have more specific dates put with them. The Nicene Creed in 325 AD, or more fully 381. The Chalcedonian Creed in the 5th century, 451. And the Athanasian Creed, if we're going to call it a creed, it's not really, but that's, that's good enough, in also the 5th century, probably. So, so the, this is the tradition of the church. And by the tradition, I mean a tradition that's handed down from the apostles and that, that is the church's agreed understanding of how the Bible should be interpreted when it comes to uh, God revealed in three persons. Now, in particular, it was the Chalcedonian Creed in the 5th century that responded to various wrong ideas that were being promoted regarding the person of Christ by asserting what the church believed to be the true biblical teaching. And so it's for this reason that we can speak of a quote, and I'm going to get rid of the fancy wording here in a minute, but I want you to be able to use these words and and appreciate their value. We can speak of a Chalcedonian Christology. Okay, Christology meaning our understanding of the person of Jesus Christ. So Christology is a beautiful word. And how do we understand the person of Jesus Christ? Well, if we want to sum it up quickly, we could say we have a Chalcedonian Christology. And that is big T tradition, which we also believe to be a biblical Christology. If Chalcedon is not biblical, then we ought to jettison it, right? It's a truly biblical understanding of the person of our Lord and our Savior, Jesus Christ. We need to know this wasn't just a metaphysical, fancy, academic discussion for the church back in the 5th century, right? The church, what they saw was that if we don't have a right understanding of who Jesus is in his person, or maybe we could put it this way, because some people love to say, what I just said. They love to say, oh man, you're talking about a mystery that we can't have any idea about, so be quiet, right? Well, I'm sorry. That is wrong. Because, because they weren't trying to penetrate the mystery. They were seeking to state the mystery carefully and then guard it humbly. Now, outside of the creed, they did get involved in some other kind of stuff, but by God's grace, the creed that the church agreed on is beautiful, and for thousands of years now, 2,000 years almost, the church has continued to state their understanding of who Jesus is and the language that was spoken 
back in the 5th century. So, the person of Christ has everything to do with the work of Christ, and therefore with our salvation. That's why this mattered to the church. For example, now we're going to just take a dive into the, what, what, what this is, is the mystery of our devotion. Paul talks about the mystery of godliness in 1 Timothy, and then he says that this mystery of godliness is Jesus Christ. So what he means, what he's saying is that the mystery of our, our godliness, of our devotion, is the person of Jesus, but it's a mystery. And so let's, let's take a deep dive into that mystery this morning and see who this person is, this Jesus is, that we confess as our Lord and our Savior. So for example, let's start out with an error. If Christ was the eternal word and son of God, existing only in a human body, okay, so how do we think of Jesus? Well, it's the eternal word existing before all time, come down and taking the form of a human, he's existing in a body, in a human body, a sensory body. The eternal word, therefore, filling the place of a truly human soul. So, so there was no human, truly human soul. Well, then Jesus, what does that mean? He was not truly and fully human. And what does that mean? If Jesus was not truly, fully human, if he had no human soul like we do, then of what value in your handout? Can his death be for you and me? So, brothers and sisters, think for a moment. Consider Jesus fully human. So a Chalcedonian Christology confesses it like this. In the language of, our, of the church fathers centuries ago, he can, they confess our Lord Jesus Christ, the same, perfect in Godhead and also perfect in manhood. Truly God and truly man. So that's important. Of a, what do we mean by truly man? Of a reasonable soul and body consubstantial, that means of the same substance with the Father, according to the Godhead, and consubstantial of the same substance, made of the same stuff, right, with us, according to the manhood, in all things, like unto us without sin. Hebrews chapter 2. Therefore, since the children share in flesh and blood, which is to say they share in humanity, that's a phrase referring to humanity. So the Apollinarians might have, there were the people proposing this idea that the word, well, essentially, it's a little simplified, but that the word just took in a human body. That was it. Um, so they might look at this flesh and blood. See, he shared in our flesh and blood, but not in our full and true humanity. That's a wrong understanding of flesh and blood. It means humanity. (laughs) 
He himself likewise also, and we see that here in a moment, he himself also partook of the same, a true and full humanity. Why did he do this? So that through death he might render powerless him who had the power of death, that is the devil, and might free those who through fear of death were subject to slavery all their lives. For assuredly he does not give help to angels, but he gives help to the seed of Abraham. So he became a seed of of Abraham. And the seed of Abraham is not just a shell of a body. Therefore, he had to be made like his brothers in all things so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God. Because who is he? The eternal word and son of God. To make propitiation for the sins of the people. For since he himself was tempted in that which he has suffered, he is able to come to help those who are tempted. So we see in these verses how the person of Christ has everything to do with with our salvation. Matthew 26, if you want to say Jesus didn't have a true human soul. Matthew 26 says, Jesus said to his disciples, my soul is deeply grieved. And the, the, the Apollinarian might say that's his divine, his, de, his divine soul, if, whatever. To the point of death, my soul is deeply grieved. Remain here and keep watch with me. Luke 22 says, Father, if you are willing, willing remove this cup from me, yet not my will, but yours be done. Luke 2 says, Jesus increased in wisdom. We know that God has never increased in wisdom. But Jesus, having a human soul, increased in wisdom, in favor with God and man. In Hebrews chapter 5, Jesus learned obedience, grew in obedience, through what he suffered. We know that could never be said of God. And neither can it be said of a mere human body. If we reject then... The Apollinarian error, which says that the Son of God took to himself just a human body and not a human soul, then we must also reject another error, and that we call adoptionism. This is the idea that God adopted a human being who had a body and a soul, of course, all human beings do, right? And then he, he, he adopted him as his son. In that case, then, Jesus was not truly and fully God. If in Apollinarianism, he's not truly and fully human because he lacks a human soul. In Adoptionism, he's not truly and fully God. Perfect in Godhood, truly God, consubstantial of the same substance with the Father. Then how can his work have any, in your handout, saving value for sinners like us? See, don't, we, we ought not to tell people, stop talking about all that. No, because the person of Christ has everything to do with our eternal future with our salvation as lost and fallen sinful human beings. This is the mystery of our devotion, brothers and sisters. This is the mystery of our, of our worship. And so it was Jesus himself who said, Truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. And that was important and is important for us to believe. Essential. Okay. A Chalcedonian Christology confesses that Christ is truly and fully God and truly and fully man. 
In other words, it was the eternal word and son of God who took to himself how much of our humanity? All of our humanity, body and soul, without sin. Now, as soon as we confess that reality, we're like, okay, I got it, right? I, I have plumbed the mystery. Let's, let's be reminded of how much we have, that is not the point there. All we're doing is guarding a mystery that we cannot plumb or penetrate. And we see that because as soon as we confess that reality, we have to ask then, well, what's the relationship? So you're saying God is, Jesus is fully God and fully man. What's the relationship between the human and the divine in Christ? How does that work? One of the reasons we don't stumble so much anymore today is we don't have a right understanding of the infinite distance between deity and humanity, between the creator and the creature. So on the one hand, if Christ is essentially a divine human hybrid, in other words, either his humanity is deified. So like this, the eternal word took to himself humanity. And as he took to himself humanity, that humanity was absorbed into his deity. Okay? So, so basically, his humanity was deified. Or, and this is helpful to think about these things because it helps us to bow down before what we cannot grasp. Or his deity, when he took to himself humanity, was somehow humanized. That's the kenosis theory today. The idea that Jesus actually emptied himself of divine attributes. That would be an emptying, that would be a humanizing of his deity. But if either of those things are true, he can no longer be truly God because God is immutable and unchangeable. He can no longer be truly man because man is man, is not God. And if he is not both truly God and truly man at the same time, how can he be in your handout the mediator? Brothers and sisters, do you see the miracle of the mediator? That God has provided a mediator To stand between God and men, the man Christ Jesus. This is what Paul writes in 1 Timothy 2.5. There is one God and one mediator also between God and men, the man Christ Jesus. Do you see how much we need this mediator, this person? The idea that our humanity could be absorbed into his deity, deified. Or that deity could somehow be humanized, that Jesus could empty himself, using Philippians chapter 2 illegitimately, of his actual divine attributes and cease to be some of what God is. It represents a failure to understand what the scriptures teach about the infinite, and what's the word here, right? You know what it is, right? It's the distance, the infinite distance between God, who is infinite spirit, and man, who is finite creature. How could there be a mediator between God and men? Here is a mystery that we will never penetrate. And that's why the Chalcedonian Creed was written so that we would guard the mystery. 
Chalcedonian Christology confesses that Christ is to be acknowledged in two distinct and unconfused natures. The property of each nature being preserved. The London Baptist Confession speaks of two whole, perfect, and distinct natures joined together, and here's the key, without conversion, God did not become somewhat more human, and the human did not become somewhat more divine or deified, without composition, without confusion. That's big T tradition. You won't find those words in Scripture. But you will find that truth in Scripture. Remember, two distinct natures is necessary. Not only because of the infinite distance between deity and humanity, but also because any conversion, any composition, any confusion robs you and me of all hope of salvation, making Jesus not the mediator between God and men, less than fully God or not fully human. So how does this doctrine of two distinct natures, what does it mean um, mean to say that Christ is two distinct, oh, I say, does this doctrine of two distinct natures mean that Christ is actually two distinct persons? Do you see how our minds, so all we're doing is saying, now, you're, now your mind wants to go here, I bet I know where your mind wants to go now. No, it can't go there either, right? So, here's the thing. Because we get in our heads two distinct natures, God and man, and the two are, they cannot be mixed, composed, confused. Well, if Christ is essentially then two distinct persons, a divine person, the eternal word and son of God, and a human person, Jesus, and somehow he's two persons at the same time. Existing together in a perfect moral union of will. So the human Jesus and the divine word existing together in perfect agreement. If that is uh, the case, and if therefore what we do with that then is we say, well then who died for us on the cross? Who died for us on the cross? Which person? Well, it was the human person, Jesus, who died for us on the cross. And if it was only a human person who died for us on the cross, of what value is his death and resurrection for us? We ought to know better than that, right? Was it just a human person who died on the cross for us? Was it just the human Jesus severed from deity who died on the cross for us? Or let me ask you this. Was it one divine person? who died on the cross for you and for me. I want to read from a quote. I don't think it's in your handout. It'll be on the website. R.C. Sproul puts it like this. So listen to this. I think this is very helpful. Even in Christ's death, the divine and human natures were still united in one person. It's not like when Jesus died, all of a sudden the deity separated from from the humanity. No. But the divine nature did not die. During the time that Christ was in the tomb, the divine nature was united with a human nature whose soul was in paradise. 
The incarnation did not suddenly cease upon the death of Christ. Christ said on the cross, Father, into your hands I commend my spirit. And Christ said this as only one person. What a beautiful person. So, a Chalcedonian Christology confesses, One and the same Christ, Son, Lord, only begotten, to be acknowledged in two natures, unconfusedly, unchangeably, indivisibly, inseparably. The distinction of natures being by no means taken away by the union, but rather the property of each nature being preserved and concurring in one person and one subsistence, not parted or divided into two persons, but one and the same Son and only begotten, God, the Word, the Lord Jesus Christ. And then I love what they say. As the prophets from the beginning have declared concerning him, and the Lord Jesus Christ himself has taught us, and the creed of the Holy Fathers has handed down to us. Big T tradition. The London Baptist Confession confesses that two whole, perfect, and distinct natures were inseparably joined together in, here's the beauty, one person. All I can do is fall down and worship. Right? Without conversion, composition, or confusion. Which person is? Very God and very man, yet one Christ. The only mediator between God and man. I, I feel like I feel like I should say, like, my, I don't know if we're the church that does this, so I'm not going to do it. I feel like I should say, is there an amen for this? Or is there, is there just, like, beauty and wonder and awe, right? Um, this is the mystery of our devotion. It's the mystery of our salvation. And it's this union of the two distinct natures in one person that the Chalcedonian Creed recognizes when it confesses that our Lord Jesus Christ was begotten before all ages of the Father according to the Godhead. And in these latter days, for us and for our salvation, born of the Virgin Mary, the mother of God, according to the manhood. So the first thing I need to say is that this expression, mother of God, was used before the church's complete and total wholesale idolization of Mary. The reason they said mother of God was had nothing to do here with the exaltation of Mary, but the right understanding of the person of Christ. Now, I, I'm, I'm not interested in fighting over the phrase, but certainly over the teaching. What the church meant to say here was that Mary was the mother of him. The one person who was, according to his divine nature, the eternal Son of God. Jesus said in John chapter 3, No one has ascended into heaven except he who descended from heaven. And who descended from heaven? The Son of Man. Now, who descended from heaven? 
the Son of Man. But Son of Man refers to Jesus according to his human nature, which Jesus did not have while he was in heaven. So shouldn't Jesus have said, if he was being more precise and more careful, it was the Son of God who descended from heaven, not the Son of Man who descended from heaven. The answer is easy, but totally mysterious. Jesus was not referring to his human nature all by itself. He was referring to himself, right? So, Here's, here's how it is. It's in your handout. The unity of his one person is such that Jesus can describe himself as descending from heaven, which can only be true in terms of his divine nature, son of God. And yet he can refer to himself in terms of his human nature because he's one person. And so we hear Jesus say that the son of man descended from out of heaven. As a technical name for that, the communication of properties, the communication of idioms. But regardless of that, listen to the London Baptist Confession, how it describes this. This is really beautiful and it helps us to worship. Christ, in the work of mediation between the God and man, acts according to both natures. By each nature doing that which is proper to itself. Yet, By reason of the unity of the person, that which is proper to one nature is sometimes in Scripture attributed to the person called by the other nature. This is where the uh, Muslims get uh, hung up when it comes to Matthew chapter 24, verse 36, the Islamic faith. Matthew twenty four thirty six, Jesus says, Concerning that day and hour, no one knows, not even the angels of heaven, nor the Son, and he says simply, the Son, but the Father only. So when he refers to the Son, he's referring to the Son of God. And Jesus says that the Son of God doesn't know something. So, is, are, you know, Muslims will then say, then clearly uh, Jesus was not God because the Son does not know something. Well, then you have to basically deal with the rest of Scripture, right? And what it teaches about Jesus. So, who, who doesn't know the day or the hour the Son doesn't know? The Son is the second person of the Trinity and is God. Shouldn't Jesus have said then, concerning that day and hour, no one knows, not even the Son of Man. Once again, the answer is this. Brothers and sisters, Jesus is not two people. He's one person. He wasn't referring to his divine nature all by itself. He's referring to himself, our Savior. The unity of his one person, is such that he can describe himself as not knowing something. Which can only be true in terms of his human nature. And yet he can refer to himself in terms of his divine nature. Because he's one person 
Mystery. Right? One other example of this. The Apostle Paul said to the Ephesian elders in Acts chapter 20. Pay careful attention to yourself and to all the flock to care for the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. Again, how can Paul talk about God's blood when we know God has no blood? God is spirit. Shouldn't Paul have said something like this? Care for the church of Jesus Christ, which he obtained with his own blood. Okay, last time I'll say this. Maybe now it can click enough times. The unity of Christ's person is such that Paul can describe him as having blood, which can only be true in terms of his human nature. And yet he can refer to him in terms of his divine nature as God. Because he's not two people. He's one person. And that person is the one we love. The one we bow down before. And the one who was made like us. And so we hear Paul saying that God purchased the church with his own blood. This in your handout is the mystery of our devotion, of our worship, and of our salvation. It is a mystery we can never penetrate. We can never comprehend, but that in your handout, we must guard with reverence. Two complete, distinct natures united in one person, one divine person, our Lord Jesus Christ. And this is why we can sing, this is why I don't change the words to this hymn when we sing this hymn. Amazing love, how can it be? That thou, my God, shouldst die for me. I would like to think that at some level we have all we need now to, to assess faithfully endeavors like the chosen. But what does this theology, this this Chalcedonian, this biblical Christology, mean for playing Jesus? My question to you is, when we cast an actor to play the part of our Lord and Savior, are we casting him to play Jesus only according to his human nature? If so, then we've fallen into the Apollinari- uh, the Nestorian heresy, as we call it today. Not sure that they all were actually saying all of that back then, but it's helpful for us in terms of definitions today. If so, we've divided Jesus then into two separate persons and have fallen into that error. I just want to point out that the man who plays Jesus according to his humanity must also play Jesus according to his deity. Because Jesus is only one divine person. This means 
that in order to succeed in his acting, the one who plays Jesus must be, at all times, perfectly revealing the Father. No one has seen God at any time. The only begotten God who is in the bosom of the Father, he has explained him. Certainly through his teaching, through his deeds. But you can't divorce his teaching and his deeds from his person, from who he was and is today. John 10.30, Jesus said, I and the Father are one. John 12, he who sees me sees the one who sent me. John 14, so, so when I hear someone acting Jesus, if that actor who plays Jesus says, he who sees me sees the one who sent me, um, um, even if it's just acting, what I believe we have here is another problem. John 14, 7, if you have come to know me, you will know my Father also. We cannot, we, cannot, we cannot simply give to an actor all the right lines, even if they're all exactly biblical, and all the right things to do, and say then that's safe to play God, because those things reveal God, but not divorced from his person. It would be one thing to play Abraham, Moses, or David, one of the twelve disciples. I think there's cautions there too, but... Far, far different than this. Not in, by the way, those cautions have nothing to do with the sacredness of their person. Nothing to do at all with that. It's another thing entirely to play Jesus. If we could divide Jesus into two persons and play only the human person, then there would be nothing wrong with this in and of itself. But because the humanity of Jesus is united inseparably with his deity in one person, therefore he... Uh, that's the blank in your handout very purposefully. He is the radiance of God's glory in his person and the exact representation of his nature. To play Jesus is to play God. And I'm not minimizing his humanity. It is to play God and therefore, I believe, to make God into our own image by default. And break the second commandment. You shall not make for yourself an idol or any likeness of what is in heaven above or on the earth beneath or in the water under the earth. You shall not worship them or serve them. Connected with this, we could, we could begin to ask the question about pictures of Jesus. Um, maybe that's another sermon. <laughs> I want to leave, certainly we can leave some of this for you to explore, to think about. I am very hesitant about pictures, especially actually real lifelike pictures. Um, um, I would certainly never hang one up in the church or put one up in our home. And there are reasons for that, some of them relating to this. But I'll leave that aside. This is even clearer for me. An interviewer once asked Jonathan Rumi, who plays Jesus in The Chosen, what do you think Jesus is going to say to you when you get up there and meet him? Uh, again, there's a lot of other concerns that I would have regarding none of those which I'm going to explore this morning. It's just this. So 
Jonathan answered the interviewer, well, I hope he says not too shabby. I hope he says that was pretty close, but I doubt it. But, you know, he'd be like, maybe it wasn't your thing. But in his humor, and I don't, you know, if you watch the interview, you could appreciate more what Jonathan said. I'm not trying to bash Jonathan in that. I don't believe that was a good answer. But after all, I don't believe he should be playing it in the first place. But given that, it doesn't sound as bad as it, it sounds worse than maybe it was when he said it. But my point in that is that in his humor, uh, Jonathan was seeking to be humble. But my question to you is, when it comes to playing the part of the Son of God, is there really any room for anything less than perfection? Yeah, I mean, I, I, I appreciated what Jonathan said. I appreciate the humility. But it doesn't introduce a problem. When I get up to heaven, Jesus will tell me, you didn't do it, you did not too shabby of a job of, of acting me. That was pretty close. Where is the only place that we can find the perfect, wholly sufficient portrayal of Jesus? The eternal word made flesh. The only place is in the scriptures, particularly in the gospels, as we read those gospels in the light of the whole of scripture. Now we're going to come back to that in a moment. But now let, let us come to a biblical Christology. If we talked about a biblical Christology and idolatry, let's talk about now the true attraction of Christ. Because let me ask you, here's my question for you. Everyone's getting more connected with Jesus through this show. But my, my question is, what is the true attraction of Christ? What is it that draws us to him and connects us to him? What is it? I watched a video where an interviewer, as it happens, a former evangelical scholar turned Roman Catholic scholar, um, he said to Jonathan, if there's one thing, uh, Jonathan Rumi, who plays Jesus, if there's one thing I suspect you've heard from other people, it's your style of presenting Jesus. Now, brothers and sisters, It's your style of presenting Jesus in a way that is so gentle, so winsome, so subtle, so understated, and yet so intensely relatable. And by the way, I've seen lots of clips. I, I have not watched the show. I, I do not want to watch it, but I've watched many of the clips. And, and I have seen exactly what he's talking about. His son, the interviewer said, my son said, you don't just want to convert. You want to enter into a deep relationship, a close friendship with Jesus. Because he is, because there's humor. There's irony. There's understatement. There's just a winsomeness that you're like, could he have been like that, that way? The interviewer says to Jonathan Rumi, who plays Jesus, you create this desire, you evoke a response of like, if that's what Jesus was like and still is, 
then a personal relationship with Jesus Christ is something I want, perhaps more than anything else. I want to be clear. Brothers and sisters, I see a zillion very serious problems with what I just read. But I also want to be clear. I am not saying Jesus had no humor. Okay. But not once in Scripture do we see him doing or saying anything humorous. Now, why do I point that out? The point for me is not that Jesus had no humor or that he couldn't laugh at a joke. Though I am not saying he did laugh at jokes. The point is that apparently it's not the humor of Jesus that ought to have anything to do with drawing us to him. Neither is it his use of irony or understatement, which honestly, again, I do not see any understatement ever portrayed in the scriptures when it comes to Jesus. Especially as I've seen that understatement in portrayed by Jonathan Rumi. What draws us to Jesus then, we want to ask, what is it that draws me to him? What is it that makes him attractive to us? It is not how relatable he is in terms of his human personality but rather how relatable he is in terms of partaking of our flesh and blood, our essential humanity made like us, so that he might die for us, be raised up from the dead for us, and intercede for us at the Father's right hand. This is what draws us and attracts us to him. And I would suggest to you that by default, by necessity, inevitably, inexorably, in a show like this, what what subtly becomes the attraction is his human personality. What draws us to Jesus is not how relatable he is in terms of his human personality because, brothers and sisters, if that is the case, then the Gospels have failed us miserably. And so have the epistles. What draws us to Jesus is that as the eternal word made flesh, he is the revelation of the Father. That draws us to him. He is the image of the invisible God. The firstborn of all creation. In him, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. And once we understand this, I would suggest to you his human personality. Now, again, I want to be careful. We know that Jesus was gentle and meek, right? He said a bruised uh, reed he would not break or a, a, a wick he would not extinguish. So there are these things that could, that could tell us things about Jesus. But whenever it comes to playing the, the human personality of Jesus, um, yeah, that's, that's beyond what we have revealed in Scripture. 
And it's also, I would suggest, beside the point in the end. What I mean to say is that it won't matter to us if Jesus doesn't laugh at jokes. It won't matter to us if he doesn't use understatement or humor. It won't matter. It won't matter if he doesn't meet all of our criteria of gentleness and winsomeness, because there's the danger. We have our criteria of what exactly a gentle person will do, look like, say, in this situation, in that situation. What winsomeness will look like and be. And there's the danger. These things in the end, though, won't matter to us because whatever Jesus is like, brothers and sisters, will be good and right. And one day we'll meet him. One day we'll meet him and see him and bow down before him, the one person, the one person, fully God and fully man. There are a number of times in preaching through Matthew and John, and I want you to remember this, because I've warned often against supposing that Jesus was speaking belligerently, harshly, sarcastically, and that matters greatly to me. So when we come to places in Scripture where we're like, oh, that sounds like mean, that sounds bad, so I've, I've tried to show us in the context of Scripture why that wasn't harsh or belligerent, but yet it may still not meet our ideas of gentleness, our, our ideas of this. On the other hand, while I've tried to warn us against those wrong views, the danger of playing Jesus is that we make him fit our sensibilities. What when in fact the true Jesus may and often does um, expose the illegitimacy of our sensibilities, even of the sensibilities of those writing the chosen. I believe that the only place, if I were to come back down to the heart of the matter, I believe the only place we ought to go to see Jesus portrayed is in the scriptures read and preached. Now, sometimes we read the scriptures and we see, what do we see? We see a skewed Jesus. Because of our own lenses through which we see, because of our presuppositions. And so sometimes we're like, well, a show like The Chosen is helping me to see Jesus differently. Sometimes we preach the scriptures and we preach a a skewed Jesus because of our legalism. Because of our cheap grace. In both of these cases, I would say to you, the solution is not to look to some other mode of portraying Jesus. The solution is not to find someone who will play a relatable human Jesus that I can love, or even someone who will preach a relatable human Jesus that I can love, which is what often happens today. The solution is to pray that God would open my eyes to his salvation. Because how can we not see his salvation? Without, how can we see his salvation and fail to see the true attraction of Christ? How is that possible? If we actually understand God's salvation, then it is not possible that we should fail to see the attraction of Christ to be drawn to him. It is not possible that we should need something else 
to correct that failure. The solution then is to have our eyes open to the true gospel so that as that saving gospel has been revealed in Jesus Christ. As a pastor, can just concerned for the flock, and I put off a long time preaching on this. I, 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 I only want to do these things insofar as I think it's important. I would suggest to you that a TV series like The Chosen may actually be subtly but seriously detrimental to our true spiritual health and joy. The chosen, by necessity, and I'm not casting aspersions, I'm not saying anything this morning about motives and heart and even what good has been accomplished. The chosen, by necessity, because of the medium of film and acting, focuses our attention on aspects of the humanity of Jesus upon which the scriptures are, I believe, very purposefully silent. On the other hand, the chosen, by necessity, again, it's just necessary, because of the medium of film and acting, must minimize the divinity of Christ's person. Because no other human being has ever been a divine person. It's one thing to say no other human being has been King David. It's another thing to say no other human being has ever been a divine person. The Apostle John writes of his own personal experience walking, talking, living with Jesus. The word became flesh and dwelt among us and we beheld his glory. He's not talking about radiance and brightness here. He's talking about glory as of the only begotten Son from the Father, incarnate, walking among us, full of grace and truth. Now, certainly John didn't know from the very beginning what exactly he was beholding in Jesus. But looking back, he could see clearly that this is what he had been beholding all along. What had had he been beholding from the very beginning? The glory of the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. That's what he beheld I would venture to say that the Apostle John who wrote those words could not ever bear to think of someone else playing that one whose glory he beheld. When we see Jonathan Rumi playing Jesus, we know that all we're seeing is a human being and nothing more. Sometimes we might comfort ourselves with that thought. Well, I just keep remembering he's not actually Jesus. But in my opinion, that is the fatal flaw. I would suggest it leads inescapably to a making of God in our own image. Today, uh, Christians, and I include myself here, we do what we want. And regardless of the chosen, if you end up not agreeing or whatever, so I'm going to leave that aside. But I want to challenge us that as Christians, I find that we do what we want. And we'll find a way to do it. That's, of course, not unique to today, I'm sure. Um, Not necessarily what we believe is right. So, in a sense, we don't want to think too carefully 
about what is right. Partly we maybe excuse that by saying, well, I don't want to be legalistic. I don't want a rule like, thou shalt not watch the chosen. Um, So I don't want legalism, and so I don't want to think too carefully about these things. But if we were concerned to do what is right, maybe what we want would change. Because at one level, I'll confess to you, when I watch clips from The Chosen, there's a part of me that all I see is an imposter. There's another part of me that's like, I want to see what he does next. But at the end of the day, it's not for me about, oh, i got a rule. I can't watch that. Turn it off. No, for me, it's about, if I don't believe that's right, why don't I believe it's right? Ah. Now, let me go and see Christ portrayed. And then there's joy. And then it's not legalism. It's no longer what I want. My purpose then is not to legalistically add to the Ten Commandments. So thou shalt not watch the chosen. If, if any one of us here, someone else is watching it, that is not the litmus test of orthodoxy. It's not the litmus test of spirituality, of right or wrong. My desire, though, is to guard us against the all-too-subtle influence of idolatry. It's to guard us against the practical denial of a biblical Christology. Ultimately, my desire each and every Sunday is to hold before us the perfect in your handout and the wholly sufficient portrait of Christ. As he's revealed to us in the gospel, or as the gospel's revealed to us in him. So I conclude by asking you this question. Uh, On what grounds do you know and love Christ? On what grounds? Have you found in him all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge? Has he become to you wisdom from God and righteousness and sanctification and redemption? Do you know him? And are you coming to know him in the gospel always more and more and more? First John chapter 5, verses 20 to 21. We know that the Son of God has come and has given us understanding so that we might know him who is true. And we are in him who is true, in his Son, Jesus Christ. This is the true God and eternal life. Little children, guard yourselves from idols. Dear Heavenly Father, Lord, I pray that, I pray, I I, I just cry out to you that at the end of this, what we have come away with is a deeper awareness of the mystery of our devotion. A deeper and more exultant joy 
that this mystery of our devotion exists in the mediator. in our Lord and our God. Father, let us, through these, these few moments this morning together, be drawn all the more irresistibly to the true attraction of Christ. We thank you that we have the opportunity to see what it is, to taste of what it is that truly attracts us, that draws us to Christ in, in the bread and the cup that we taste of this morning. Oh, we thank you for this. We pray this in Jesus' name. And Lord, I, I pray too that as we prepare our hearts for this meal, that, that if anyone has not yet known the true attraction of Christ, has not yet truly come to him in faith, love, repentance, trust, worship. May they see him in his true beauty this morning. In Jesus' name, amen.